Welcome everybody to Hacker Valley Blue, where we get the industry's best and brightest cyber defenders to share their experiences and tips on how you can better defend your assets and networks. This season, I'm gathering some of the very best blue teamers across the field to form my all-star team of defenders who will use their talents against some of the biggest cyber threats that we face today. Join me as I meet with my team, learn about their origins, what drives them, and the pivotal role they play in the world of cyber defense. So without further ado, let's get to it. When it comes to IT and security, we can agree on two things. Complexity is increasing and manual asset inventory approaches no longer cut it. It's time to adapt. And that's where Exonius comes in. Exonius correlates asset data from existing cybersecurity and SaaS solutions to provide an always up-to-date inventory, uncover gaps, and automate action, giving you the confidence to control complexity. Sign up for a free walkthrough of the platform at exonius.com slash get a tour. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash get dash a dash tour. And welcome to another episode of Hacker Valley Blue. I am your humble host, Davin Jackson, also known as DJAX. And this episode, I'm super excited to have my guest. Uh, as you know, I'm building my team of defenders. And when I came across this gentleman, I said I had to have him on my team. You know, my defender team has to have someone who uses innovative tactics to better defend resources and help the team better defend resources and know what to look for. So when I got in contact with him and he agreed to be on the show and be a part of the team, I completely jumped at it. So ladies and gentlemen, everybody watching or listening, please welcome my guest, Christopher Peacock. Chris, how you doing? Thanks. Thanks for joining. Good, man. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this podcast. It should be a good one. <laughs> No, thank you for joining again. For those who don't know, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and talk about your career? Yeah, so Christopher Peacock right now, I'm at a Scythe, which we do adversary emulation. Uh, I specialize in detection engineering on that side, but I do help out with CTI and also developing emulation plans as well. And as far as going back through my career, you know, I actually started defense as a football coach. I was a defensive coordinator back in the day. Uh, and then, you know, Moved over, became a network uh, engineer after doing some help desk stuff, did some sysadmin things, and then jumped over to uh, General Dynamics, uh, was doing blue team things there. actually started doing some, that was like my first time doing purple team uh, setups as well, and then jumped over to Raytheon, did everything from uh, tier three uh, SOC analyst to threat hunting to detection engineering to cyber threat intelligence uh incident response <laughs> i mean <laughs> pretty much a jack of all trades when it comes to blue side and consulting on those so yep and then finally uh here i am at scythe now so you've pretty much been all over blue like like you literally like bleed blue at this point <laughs> so uh when you decided to move into tech and then cybersecurity, um did you always know you wanted to be on the defensive side like what drew you to the blue side um I mean, honestly, like when I first got into it, one of my friends, he's like, hey, man, you should check this out. I think you'd be good at it and stuff. And I remember, you know, like first downloading uh, Kali and things like that. And then I jumped over and I did a year long course. Uh, so I was at a local community college. We did uh, five to 10 Monday through Thursday, five to 10 p.m. after work. We learned both sides of the, uh, you know, blue and red. So like we would we would actually do an SSH brute force and then we would try to pick it up and then, you know, make an alert on it. So I've always kind of been a purple teamer. Uh, the biggest thing was is growing up in Tallahassee and being in Tallahassee, there's really not a lot of gigs for red team operations. So I think it just the natural uh, flow of things trying to get into more of the uh, cybersecurity side of things. You know, there's a lot more employment opportunities on the blue side. So I, I just gravitated uh, towards that, I guess. Oh, that's interesting. I never knew that there was a that there was like a shortage out, out there. Um, but you also mentioned that um, you were a coach or or are you still do you still coach on the side? No, I wish, man. I think uh, one of the last players that I had the privilege to coach, it's uh, now his senior year at FSU. Uh, so shout out to Amari Gaynor. Uh, hopefully he'll be going, you know, we'll, we'll see. Maybe maybe first round, second round. Uh Lots of uh, good stuff from the ACC with him. Lots of awards. But um, 
Yeah, it was one of those things I, I had to get out of. Uh, I didn't want to spend, you know, 80 hours a week prepping for games. And I think they only like college coaches only get about one week off a year, especially because yeah. everyone thinks that the the year ends and then, you know, you go to something else. But with college coaching, if you want to dive down that route of professional coaching, you don't really have an off season. So I, I like, you know, floating more around that 40 to 50 hour, maybe 60 hour at the most, but 80, uh, 80 hours a week is a little too much. But what it did teach me was, is you have to study the adversary. And to me, you have to get into the the film room, right? Like you, you want to actually study that offense, what they're doing and study your adversary before you face them and, and run scrimmages, you know, so that everyone's ready and you don't have those surprises. I mean, look at, I'm a big Bucks fan, but not this past year, the year before when they won the Super Bowl, they went in there and mm. shut down one of the hottest offenses. And you know it's because they studied that offense to the T. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it was – I mean, I, I don't have a dog in either fight. I'm a Giants fan. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, it was it was actually amazing to watch um, that defense. And and like you said, it, it's it's super important to – understand what the offense is doing what the offense is doing and your uh adversary uh, because without it you know you can you can have all the offense in the world but if your defense can't back you up then what what good is it really now your official role is adversary emulation slash detection engineer that's a hefty title but what does that entail what is your day-to-day like yeah so what we're trying to do is we're trying to get down to procedure level intelligence um and see what adversaries are doing, right? Because I think you you know as well as I know, uh, if you're a hacker, you fall into your training or you fall into what you know. Is, if something's worth the past 10 engagements, you're probably going to try this engagement. So we, we yep. try to look at the specific procedures that they're running uh, and then gather that. And then I try to I make emulation plans off that. And then after those emulation plans, I'll run them through a logging, such as Sysmon, different things like that. And then we can derive detection opportunities out of that. So that's the high level overview of it is getting the intelligence at the procedure level. What are adversaries doing? Let's run it. And then let's make sure that we either have the detections around it. Uh, we also like to drive response. You know, I, I say it time and time again, you'll see it where someone gets like Mimikatz alert on the domain controller. And then a SOC tier one may say, okay, Mimikatz was removed. Uh, we ran an AV scan everything's fine now, right? But it's like, well, how did Mimikatz get on that domain controller? That's a big concern. Uh, so it's one of those things where we have to audit different parts of response, you know, and then we have to fix things. So if there was a wrong response, we need to fix the response at the human level, uh, training, things like that. And then if we don't have detections, then we dive into that detection engineering side, uh, you know, developing Sigma rules and things like that. Uh, so that we actually have detections on those procedures that the adversaries are doing. So it's, it's almost like finding out why or the how and the why. So, you know, when, like when I teach, when I teach um, junior pen testers or anything there, what I, I try to tell them is it's good that, you know, the tool or, you know, how the tool works, but you should know why, why the tool works, right? Why is this exploit happening? Why, why, are, why is this NMAP scan important? You know, so it's not just, um, you know, dare I say being like a script kitty, which is kind of like, oh, I'm just going to spray and pray. You know, if it, the better you understand of what's happening um, will definitely make it a lot more efficient and make you a lot less noisy for people um, like like you on your side. It's like, wait, hold on. There's something going on here. So um, I, I like I like that mindset and that approach of, you know, trying to figure out all of that and figure out almost like taking lessons learned and applying it to something else. But that does um, actually sound real exciting. And I know one of the things for me as a pen tester is, uh, you know, when you learn about new exploits and techniques and you get to throw it in that lab and you get to practice it or you get to mess with that vulnerable machine or, or CTF and, you know, run that exploit and pop the shell. What excites you about your job or what, what excites you about what you do? Oh man, so many things. Uh, I think it's just like the constant cat and mouse of that. There's going to be that new technique or procedure that comes out and then, you know, okay, well now I have the challenge of how do I figure out how to catch this? Uh, and then, you know, I, then I can write a rule and then deploy it to Sigma so that other people can use it, things like that. That's always fun. We're just helping customers, you know, really 
dive down into their logs and start, you know, writing custom rule sets uh, within their, their like EDRs or their sims to really look for different things uh, that are suspicious, right? With all the law bass and law bins being executed nowadays, it's one of those things where uh, you never know what's malicious and suspicious. So you pretty much have to tune your things down to flag on suspicious activity. Uh, but it's always like, it's really fun when like some, someone gets into an organization and like you catch it like right off the bat and you're like, yep, that's a ransomware actor. And we got them on the first toast and kicked them out the network. Like that's always a fun time uh, because you know, you're, it's one of those things that they meme it where it's like a guy standing in the corner of a party. And he's like, no one will know that I stopped a million dollar ransomware <laughs> breach today. <laughs> it's so hard though, yep. too, at the, like, at, the, at the end of the day, because you know, if you don't do that, you're not doing your job. Uh, so right. <laughs> it's like, you're either not doing your job and you don't get a huge reward, but it's it's very satisfying and I like it. Um, so just being on the blue side and, and keeping bad guys out. And also when you get to kick them out, especially early before they get to do anything, uh, you're like, you know, no, no. It's like that one, uh, oh, is it the Geico commercial where the guy like swats the thing out? He's like, no, 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 <laughs> not in my house. You know, it's like that little moment. It's It feels good. Yeah. Um, but it's funny that you mentioned it because, yeah, it is almost like a lonely feeling. Like I, I remember there are times where I've done something or like I've I, I broke M, I broke MFA and got into something and I'm like, yes. And then I go upstairs to try to explain it to my family and they're like, great, that sure. Good for you. And it's like, you don't understand. Forget it. Right. It's like, but yeah, that meme is perfect. It's like, no, no one will know that, you know, I just did this and no one cares. But but um, but but we do, and we we understand it, and that that's why we have shows and stuff like this. Have there or has there been any type of attacks that you haven't been able to track and create scripts against? Sometimes it just depends, like on logging sources, right? So, like I know some EDRs. Like one of the things you can do is you can look at uh, a pipe name of PS host being created. So that's indicative of PowerShell. So you can look for that coming off of non-PowerShell applications. Uh, a fair amount of EDRs will actually log this, so you can't actually do that. So sometimes it's just limitations on the data uh, being collected. Other areas you get dive more deeper of like really pressing what could be out there, such as you know unhooking EDRs and things like this. So you, you see like really advanced organizations, they may run like an EDR and then also like a Sysmon uh, to try to get in case one gets turned off or something or a uh, shout out to Florian Roth. Uh, they just released their new uh, EDR tool and it actually does like an ETW uh, canary uh, to try to see if someone unhooks it. Uh, so it, it actually will flag that someone's unhooked it. So it's not getting those flows. So there's some things that you can do out there, uh, but it's definitely going to be interesting over like the next decade or two as like the unhooking parts become better and the bypasses become better of how deep we have to go. Or, you know, there could be some new thing that Microsoft introduces or something that EDR has introduced that kind of then uh, shift the landscape from, uh, you know, as far as what attackers can do for bypassing. So you never really know, but it's one of those things that I was listening to a podcast earlier and you were talking about, you know, what is it, Moore's law or the other, the whatever the law it is, where it's like it changes like every 16 months or something. So it's one of those areas where, you know, in cyber, we always have challenges and we're always, you know, trying to catch up with different things. So I can't really point to one event. There was like one IR engagement where the NAT logs weren't there. So we knew that there was a certain adversary coming in. But then we couldn't see where they went inside necessarily because of the, the logs weren't there to show what they came out as. Uh, so that was a very frustrating time for me. That was probably the most frustrating time uh, trying to actually, because then you have to do a whole bunch of other stuff to figure out where they went to and things like that. Uh, but yeah, it really comes down to having the visibility. And most of the time you have visibility, then you can develop some form of detection around it. It's going to be interesting to see how things go as as adversaries uh, gear more towards that EDR bypass. But I mean, right now, you know, ransomware actors are the biggest threat and we're not even seeing them do uh, unmanaged PowerShell. They're still running regular PowerShell. So we might have some time before we're we're to a point where I'm a little bit more concerned. Yeah. 
Um, I think I think you kind of jumped into it a little bit, which was going to be my next question, which was um, in all of your experience, what has been the hardest thing to defend and why? Hardest thing to defend, I would say, would be advanced persistent threats. And a lot of times that, you know, that A is not advanced as in advanced capabilities. A lot of times that's they're advanced in their persistence, like they are very, very persistent. If they have a strategic goal to get in your organization, then they're going to come back and they're going to come back. And also um, some of them, you know, they can hide pretty well. Opportunistic attacks are a big concern because they can attack any organization. Uh, but they're very, if you know how to handle them, um, then you're going to be all right. Like I said, you can kick them out really early, uh, usually with like once they get on the first host, if not when they do uh, a few lateral movements or enumerate the domain. But when you get an, an actual, you know, tier one advanced persistent threat, you know, China, Russia, I believe China has been training some of the Iranian threat actors. So you've seen them get a little bit better, uh, just different things like that. And also, too, I mean, man, nowadays the availability of, of uh, resources out there is is mind boggling when you look at it, because there's just so many resources that threat actors can use, but yeah, definitely the, the, the top tier APTs, those are going to be the biggest ones that are the, the hardest ones to track down the hardest ones to handle. Uh, but the biggest threat to, you know, our nation pretty much, I would say is ransomware actors and criminals because they're opportunistic. And yeah, we have fortune 500 or fortune 100 companies that are spending a lot and they're very secure, but all it takes is, you know, a small little piece that, is not spending a whole lot on cybersecurity um, and they don't have a big team and it takes one of those small little pieces. It's, it's like a Jenga set, you know? <laughs> yeah, we have our big companies up here, but if some of these fall, then things, things, you know, come down some. So like different supply chains and stuff like we saw with the oil supply chain, you know, right. wasn't necessarily a BP or an Exxon, but there was big implications because it, because of it. So it just depends on what you want to see as being the threat uh, to who you are. But to me, uh, APTs are definitely when I, I get I get excited when I hear like there's a tier one APT because I know it's going to be a fun hunt and incident response compared to an easy one. And you like seeing, you know, it's one of those things where like if you want to play chess, you want to play chess with some of the best people, right, to make yourself better and have that challenge. So yeah, tier one APTs definitely for sure. Yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, it's like a cat and mouse and, and chess game all in one. Um, so while we're talking about, you know, different challenges and different threats and some of the challenges that you face with, you know, finding the different logs and the tools and getting all that information in one place, I think now would be a great time to mention uh, this this uh, episode sponsor, actually this season sponsor. Uptics provides the first unified cloud-native security analytics platform that enables both endpoint and cloud security from a common solution to, en to enable security professionals to quickly prioritize, investigate, and respond to potential threats across a company's entire attack surface. By unifying visibility in a single tool, security operation analysts can focus on one tool set and interface to improve productivity and efficiency. So Chris talked about earlier, you know, getting the logs and trying to figure out where, where the logs end up and how they came out. Um, would a tool like Uptakes help better that situation or, or make things a, a lot easier? Yeah, I mean, anytime you are able to actually ingest everything into a single pane, that helps speed up the process. Uh, with detection engineering, I kind of call it the, the cyborg because you're looking at the human element and the technical element. And so uh, one of the things is, is the proficiency of that. If you're constantly having to correlate different things, so you go into this tool and this tool and this tool, and you're, you're constantly grabbing different things and trying to almost mesh them together sometimes in like a hodgepodge timeline or things like this, it's, it can be painful. Or maybe you have to stand up an elastic later and then throw everything together. So if everything's just already there in a single pane of glass, then that's nice and it helps people be more efficient. So anytime we can have better efficiencies for our operators, that's definitely a huge benefit. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for that answer. And again, thank you to Uptix. For more information on Uptix, you can check out their website at uptix.com. That's U-P-T-Y-C-S.com. 
So, Chris, um, going back to what you were talking about with, you know, the tier one APTs and, and the attacks and, 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 help, and having to defend against those, the new attacks, how do you keep up with that? And how does what you do with attack emulation help? Yeah, so it's one of those things where we need to study the adversary and see what they're doing. Oftentimes, it is hard to get actual procedure level uh, intelligence about what an adversary is doing because... Let's face it, if a tier one APT is hacking an organization, it could be something like the DOD. So that that incident response report is going to be classified. But outside of that, we see other areas where we can actually get intelligence from that. Sometimes uh, Mandiant or what Google Now, uh, whatever, when they might release something, you can get different things like Palo Alto, uh, CISA. Uh, MITRE goes out and they'll pull different MITRE attack. They'll pull different things inside it. So it's one of those things where you're going through and you're trying to analyze what they're doing, what they have done. And then sometimes too, you also are hypothesizing about what they could do. So yeah, we collect stuff on them and we try to emulate them and you're emulating to the best that you can. And then you can also hypothesize and hypothesize and then do those um, in your emulations as well. So if you know in your organization that you're going to block this step typically that's used by a uh, an attacker, well then you know that they're going to have to they're going to have to develop a way around that or use something else. So then you kind of delve into hypothesize, well how would they do that? You know, we can have our researchers, our red team look into it and develop other ways that they might uh, do that step. But at the end of the day, you're trying to chain together different steps. And you might have to change procedures that the adversaries do uh, on certain steps. But overall, you should have a good picture of what it's looking like. And so what we're doing is we're going out, we're gathering that intelligence. We also have awesome red teamers who are filling in gaps sometimes in, in that cyber threat intelligence. And we're doing that plan. And from that plan, it allows people to, to actually go out and run this in the environment uh, to see what their environment, how it would react there. You know, does your EDR actually alert? I was running one plan and uh, we had a EDR that we were looking at and everything was low alerts. And sometimes, a, you know, a SOC, they might be inundated with highs and criticals. Uh, maybe they don't even work anything below a medium. So if these are only low alerts, well, we need to do something about this, right? Because we're not going to catch this adversary. So then it's going in and helping people realize like, all right, well, this low alert, it only ever flags when we run an emulation. Maybe we should change the alert status from low to high or critical for this one. At the end of the day, it's really coming down to, you know, helping organizations kind of do that scrimmage. So you're scrimmaging against your team. So when the adversary actually shows up, you've you've seen something similar to them and you you know that you're going to be able to defend against them. How important is that to have that scrimmage, to have that communication between red and blue um, to make sure that, you know, everything that you're seeing on your end uh, is is being done properly or, or seeing what they're doing on their end? When it comes to what you do on a daily basis, how important is that collaboration? Oh, I mean, it's huge. So when you look at when you look at what why a red team really exists. It's to actually help the security posture of the organization. Yep. And so when we start realizing that we're, we're, we all have the same goal, we work for an organization and our goal is to help this organization be more secure. So I don't like to look at it as like two different teams. I like to say, you know, everyone's on the same team here and we're trying to make sure that we can defend against threats. So that's one of the big things is just getting people to stop thinking that you're on separate teams, because if if they think they're on separate teams, they're going to act like they're on separate teams. So yeah. we got to bring it together and then we got to have that collaboration because both sides need to understand the other side. So if I'm doing detection uh, engineering or detection validation and the red team says, oh, well, you only caught this one step, but you didn't catch the other five. Well, how am I supposed to? do any sort of engineering to catch those other five if you're not talking to me. So we're not helping the organization actually get any better here if you're just holding out on those four. And then from the other side is, is if I develop detections for all those, 
well, I'm not doing the organization any good if I don't give it back to the red team to say, hey, validate these. Come up with ways to try to bypass these. And then we're going to keep hardening each other. You know, there's like there's a quote from, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to get religious or anything on anyone, but it's, there's a, a great quote that one of my uh, football coaches used to say. And it was this iron sharpens iron, man sharpens man. So it's one of the, one of those things where the team sharpens itself because you're constantly challenging each other uh, in this organization for the organization to be better. Now, I'm not I'm not going to let you get off the hook that easy. Right. I agree with you 100 percent. Collaboration is important and having that communication between teams and being one team is important. But there is that competitive factor. So and you come from, you know, coming from a sports background, I know you have it in you. So what does it feel like when you have that moment where you did your hypothesis, you put all the pieces together, you, 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 you created everything, and then you set the red team out to see if they can get in and they can't and they get stopped? What's, tell me, tell me that's, not, that, that does, that's not like a feel good moment for you. Honestly, not, not for me because the red really? team. Yeah, be, because I see them as something that's some like pe- they're people who I'm working with. It, it only feels good to me when it's the actual adversary that we're kicking out and stuff like that. Otherwise, gotcha. to me, it's just it's kind of like a due diligence thing. So I think it's one of those things where, you know, it's like going to practice. And then when the adversary shows up, it's like it's game day, if that makes sense. I think you touched on it earlier where you talked about, you know, some organizations don't have the resources to do you know, to defend everything like some of the some of the higher tiered organizations. What is something that you could recommend that would be fairly simple to implement, fairly cheap to implement, but it could also make a huge difference? I would totally recommend the CIS controls. If you actually go to the CIS controls, there's different controls based on your org size. So if you're a smaller org, it says you should do this at level one. Um, and then it says, you know, if you're uh, if, if you're a huge organization, you do these three things instead of just this one thing. But the, the biggest thing is, is knowing your assets. But that's the biggest thing because you can't defend what you don't know you have. So if you don't know you have a vulnerable server that's public facing, you can't defend it and it's going to get popped. Uh, if you don't know that you have, you know, an XP on your network that doesn't have any sort of logging on it or segmentation around it, it probably could get used as a as a jump post at some point so it's one of those things of just knowing what you have and then from there uh, obviously patch management is huge especially on the edge we see it now with vulnerabilities getting released you know there's going to be something exploiting that within a matter of days pretty much so you need to be able to patch at the edge very quickly and i would say the third thing is uh probably some form of application whitelisting. And people used to say it's really, really hard. And typically back in the day, I'd be like, yeah, it is hard because you get to print out like, you know, an Excel sheet with over 2000 applications and you're you're going through it and you're saying yes, yes, no, no, things like that. But nowadays, a lot of the security solutions, especially the AV solutions, you can say uh, a risk score. So you can, you can pretty much approve applications that have a risk score over, you know, X amount. And what it does is these, these AV solutions are looking and they're saying, look, this is a very rare application. So we're not gonna, you know, we're gonna automatically put it onto a block list. Uh, it's one of those easy wins to where you can do application whitelisting pretty easily, uh, just like that without actually having to go through every step. So those are the, the real top three things. Know what you have, patch the edge quickly, and then uh, try to have application controls. Okay. Uh, I, I, I like I like all three of those answers, and I agree with them, especially the, uh, the one about patching, because I think that's one of the one of the issues that you hear a lot um, when it comes to dealing with, you know, development teams or blue teams is that, you know, they have a hard time patching their stuff or coming up with the latest thing. Why do you think that that does happen? I mean, I've had a couple other people on, you know, talk about different different scenarios. Like, for example, Leslie Carhart talked about the you can't necessarily just go patching ICS systems because you might break a bunch of other things. And now you have millions of dollars of, of junk 
um, essentially. And then um, I had Eric Bellardo also on the show who talked about, you know, there was a lot, it was a lot easier, I guess, 30, 30 years ago. And now there's a lot of red tape involved. But why do you think it's something like patching is, is, is it seems to be so difficult? Um, you do have like the change control side of it. There's multiple things, you know, the ICS side, we actually have, you should have other controls where the patching doesn't need to happen immediately and you can do other testing because, you know, you're going to have controls around that environment, such as segmentation. Deploying to a production environment, having all those patches done, it's just going through that change control process, but often you can patch other things first. And then the other area is just resources are limited. So it's one of those things where smaller teams, they don't have the resources to have you know, someone reading the Nessa scans, someone following up with every CISA post about what needs to be patched. Um, they don't have the resources to work with uh, their active directory, you know, group policy and things like that to push out updates. So it's really the resources side of things that have the constraints. But the biggest thing, like we said, is having that edge really is the biggest area. And one of the, one of the downsides to this is people say, well, we can't patch the edge uh, systems, you know, web service or whatnot. They're public facing. They need to be up. But it, if you can't pull that down for patching, then that means that you only have like one critical system. And you probably need, if it needs that good of uptime availability, you probably need to reconsider why it's only one system. And it probably should be in something like an active passive or active active state that one can yeah. be patched and then the other can be patched. Um, so that, these are different talks that you have to have with different people. Uh, but one of the things I also like to talk about is there's certain things where even if the patching doesn't occur, you can still look at what would happen. So if we know Apache is vulnerable at our edge, what would it look like if that Apache process is exploited? Are, is the attacker who's exploiting it, are they spawning uh, PowerShell or are they spawning WMIC or something like that? And then we can start at least looking at detections around it. So we can say that if they were to, you know, exploit this vulnerability or an O-Day that we don't even know about yet, what would that look like and how can we uh, presumably catch that? So these are also other considerations to have is what does it look like if this is exploited? What, how do we have detections uh, to layer defenses, you know, so to speak? Yeah. Yep. And you're absolutely right. Uh, like things like redundancy is definitely um, important if that's the situation. Um, so <clears throat> I guess the, the next question is, so we talked about what they could do, uh, that, that could implement, uh, a, a, and make a huge difference, but with all your different ex years of experience in different organizations and with the advancement of attacks happening so frequently, is there anything that you think organizations need to change internally to help, you know, be better prepared? I would say that there's, there needs to be a shift as far as having threat-informed defense. Right now, we have where the defense is driven by compliance, which that's good. We need compliance, and that helps us reach a certain level of defense. If compliance worked well enough, then ransomware wouldn't have happened because we saw ransomware in plenty of organizations that met compliance. So this is where we need the, that threat-informed defense to say, you know, here's how ransomware actors are operating. And they, I mean, you can look at the Conti playbook and they would run through the steps. There was even one I was reading from like, I think it was like the DFA report where the operator actually copied and pasted from the Conti playbook. And it's supposed to like insert IP here. They actually, they didn't change that to the actual <laughs> IP. So like they actually ran that command on the host. So yeah. these are things where we need that threat informed defense. Back in the day, some of my first spots, I was going in places. I was doing things like I learned in class. I'm like, oh, here's how you do this. You know, Mimikatz, that's cool. Let me run it. Oh, nothing's really catching this like five years ago or six years ago. So there's different things like that where just, you know, knowing what the threats are and then seeing what they look like in your environment and then having detection capabilities made around those. Uh, but yeah, you, you can't stop PowerShell if you don't know that PowerShell is malicious. So it's really that threat informed. And it's also coming down to having uh, threat feeds or Intel feeds, as they're called, 
which to me, it's not intelligence. These feeds, they support intelligence and they can support you producing an intelligence product, but they aren't intelligence amongst themselves. They're just data or information. People have skewed that, oh, I'm threat informed because I have these hashes. But like David Bianco just released a great post on how like only like 0.33% of hashes were like seen in more than like one organization or so. Something ridiculous where hashes aren't really going, you know, they're not, they're, a hash changes pretty much almost every time a payload is generated by an adversary. So it's one of those things where we have to shift, like what is threat informed? Because right now people are thinking of threat informed, like, oh, I need the hashes. I need the IPs. I need to look for them or flag on them in my organizations. That's, that's great for due diligence, right? I need to make sure, like if someone, if someone holds up a face of a bank robber, I need to make sure that that bank robber is not in my bank. But at the same time, if I know that, you know, 20 bank robbers are going through and drilling through the front of the safe, then looking through with like a microscope so that they can crack the lock. Well, then I know I need to put a, a break glass in there. And that's what they did back in the day. They started putting this uh, glass plate in there. So when people drilled in, it seized up the, uh, the vault. So it's, right. we really need to study the procedures that the attackers are doing, and that helps drive the threat uh, informed defense. On the flip side, I, I also think, you know, things like constant, not constant, but professional development and, and training is also super important because if you don't know what to look for, you know, or going back to what we were talking about earlier with the whole Moore's law where, yeah, eight, every 18 months things change. So just like things change, just like technology changes, so do attacks and so does the attack landscape. But if, you know, if you're not staying up to date with it and your company's not encouraging you to stay up to date with it, then yeah, you're, you're going to, you're going to be blind to some things. You're not, you're going to, you're, you're going to pass some things by. Like, so I, I also think that plays a major role in it as well. Oh yeah. Hands down. Definitely. I mean, you know, and there's point, the great thing right now is there's so much great resources out there for training as well. If anyone you know watching is trying to get into it, uh, Cybrary is great. Hack the Box is great. There's so many different resources out there for training. You know, we're not the only emulation platform. There's like, if you're just starting out, there's uh, what is Atomic Red Team. You can start playing with these things, and that's also training. And I, I love to actually train in production as a blue teamer because one thing I always, I always is disappointed about was like, I'm like, man, I learned this cool thing in this like exercise or whatever. And it's like, well, I don't have those tools. So then how do I do it in my tools? And it's like, uh, so it's one of those things where like, I love actually doing training, uh, if I can, like in my production system. So I know what it's like in my, in my SIM, in my EDR, not someone else's makeshift EDR or whatnot. Yeah. I think that's, that's one major difference between red and blue. We, we don't, we don't like playing around in production. (laughs) unless unless we have unless we have explicit permission we i I can i i can go a whole other hour about some horror stories about testing in production but um yeah i think that that's a major difference there but imagine you did all your training on cobalt strike and then someone comes in they're like okay you're gonna use uh what is it uh merlin you'd be like oh (laughs) true yeah so But there's so many things, but yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I wish <laughs> I wish more engagements would let red teamers out of their box. Um, so many times I've seen it where, you know, blue team directors and stuff, they'll put a red team in a box and it's, I feel bad for them because I, I have that sympathy, which not a lot of blue teamers know about what that side looks like, but they definitely should get friends. If you're on a blue team, make some red free, like make some red team friends. And like get to know them and get to know what their pain points are. And then, you know, how we can actually work better together in cybersecurity as one group trying to help organizations defend better. One pain point is testing in a lower environment that's not like the equivalent to, to what's happening. So you, you it's completely different sometimes where it's like, oh, yeah, we're running this and we're running this in staging. But in production, we have something completely different. It's like that's. So rant for another day. Well, so we talked about, um, you know, people wanting to come in and get in, in, and have an interest in blue team. And, and honestly, um, 
I think that's one of the purposes of this show as well is to kind of highlight it to show people that, you know, this is an, this is another option. A lot of times you only hear about, you know, the sexy jobs, you know, the, the pen testing roles or the red team roles or anything like that. We definitely could use a lot more talented people on, on the blue team side. But I think one of the issues that they usually have is, you know, they're, they're uh, intimidated. They're intimidated by, you know, what the job entails and knowing that you have to defend, you know, multi-million or multi-billion dollar systems at a time. And, you know, it can be a little overwhelming. So what advice would you give or recommendations you would give to uh, to any new blue teamer just starting out? Figure out what you like to do, right? There's so many areas of blue team. You can do reverse engineering. That's a function of blue team. You can uh, get into cyber threat intelligence. That's, you know, considered one of the functions kind of a blue team. There's so many areas that you can go down. So figure out which one you like to do and start just diving down that route. Uh, but the biggest thing is, is just keep learning. So, I mean, you, I, I remember last time we spoke, you are like, man, I saw how many certifications you have. <laughs> it's one of those things where you got to keep learning. You got to get there after hours. You're not going to always have hours to get training in on the job, especially like working in a sock, man. Like if you're, if you're on tier one, you're not going to get too many opportunities to get training in on the job. Start trying to learn from what you're seeing and then tr try to, you know, get extracurricular uh, training as well. It's one of those things where people say that we silo off different knowledge things and stuff like that. Um, and that might be true in some organizations and stuff. But the great thing is now there's so much out there that if you if you want to grow, um, you can grow and you can grow very fast in, in this field and on the blue team uh, side of things because of we really need a bunch of blue teamers out there. We need a lot of uh, good blue team talent to help defend our organizations and just get out there outside of your job or outside of if you're, you know, if you're going through college or you're working a part time job, whatever it is. Try to devote that extra time, you know, whether it's if it's, you know, oh, I'm going to spend three hours this week extra on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday or whatever it is. Devote that time to try to, you know, level up. Um, it's it's hard. I know that I know it's hard because I've done it um, and you got to spend that time. But that's one of the great things is, is I've never seen a career really where you can really get back what you put in. A lot of times, you know, there's stuff, there's certain careers that you can go into where the more you put in, you just kind of stay stagnant. Where in cyber, uh, the more you put in, the more knowledge you gain. It you it really actually helps you uh, grow quickly within the field. Yeah, I, I, one of the things I, I talk about with cyber or in tech in general is that this is one of the few fields where you don't have to rely on anybody else to grow when I decided to move into tech, that's what, that's what led me to it. I was working as an electrician and before you can become a licensed electrician, you have to be registered as an apprentice. And the only way you can get registered as an apprentice is your employer has to register you. And I worked with this, I worked with my employer for two years <clears throat> and he didn't register me. And finally I kind of like went into his office and was just like, what more do I have to do? I've been here two years. I'm literally doing jobs on my own at this point. Why, why can't I get registered at this point? It's we're wasting time. Like I can't get any of this time back to put towards my, my, my hours. And he just looked at me and was like, well, why would I do that? Cause if I do that, then I have to, you know, gradually increase your pay. And then eventually when you're a licensed guy, I have to pay you licensed electrician money where I can just keep you here. And so it was just like, I, I don't want anyone to have any, control over my career progression. Um, hopefully, you know, you work for an employer that realizes what, how much of an asset you are what, by growing and by building your skill set that they do things to retain you and to keep you and, 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 and help you elevate within the company. But if not, that new skill that you're learning is also very marketable. So, you know, like I said, it, that, that, this is one of the fields where it's kind of, it's beneficial to, to stay on top of it. And again, going back to Moore's law, you don't want to be certified in like Windows Server 2008 when, 
now everything's in the cloud. So, <laughs> so there's that. I was going to say, you know, it's one of those things too, where like, like you said, it comes down to managers being able to actually realize and want to improve, uh, you know, their team and grow their team. And one of the biggest things that I've seen where some companies accelerate and others uh, do not is the managers have to communicate with like the HR department and say like, look, we're a specific niche. We have to have accelerated uh, pay scale bumps and things like this. And we also have to have like, you know, we have to have so much for training because, you know, there's some areas of business operations where, you know, things don't really change as much. But like you said, time and time again, we're in an industry where things change constantly and at a very fast pace. So we need that training to keep up with it. So we need that training. We need to invest in our people and then we need to retain our people because we've also we've invested in them. So there's so many issues there, but a, a great manager will help solve all these issues and really drive those home and get the, the organization together as a whole to help uh, the security posture. I'm sorry you also had to go through that, man. No, no, I'll go. No, no. You know, it, it, guess what? It got me here. So I'm grateful. You know, I, I don't know if they're still in business, but I still I, I have job security. So. <laughs> but yes, everything that you said um, and let the church say amen to what, to, to, to what you just said right there. Um, and also for those who are interested in learning about it, another great resource. And he won't tell you, but I'll tell you, go check, go, go, go look him up on YouTube. He has a really great talk on defending the, the cyber kill chain. So go go check out that talk. Um, it, it's I think it's extremely helpful in how you kind of break it down. Uh, you make it less intimidating, right? Because that's the other thing is like you walk into some of these meetings and people are talking all the tech jargon and stuff and you're like, it's it's like a foreign language. So, um, you know, I think your approach to kind of giving that talk and breaking it down and actually using your experience as a football coach um, really made it engaging and and, 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 and entertaining and, and, and learn. And I learned a lot from it myself. So go check that out if you haven't seen it already. What is one misconception um, that you've heard about blue teaming that you wish uh, you could you could change. It's hmm. a good one. One misconception, I guess that it's not cool. Like everyone thinks that like popping shells like cool, but like I'm sure you know some red teamers where it's like, man, I've been on five engagements and like we we have the same thing and it's like the same thing over and over again. You know yeah. they they slap like a box on the network, they run responder, they pivot to the DC, but there's also certain things on the blue side as well. That's cool. You know, preventing a ransomware attack being like in kicking them out before they, before they take the data and before they also encrypt it. Right. Cause they, they exfiltrate your stuff and then they lock your stuff on your systems. So you can actually stop that from happening. Uh, but there's, there's, plenty of like coolness to it like you know threat hunting which to me threat hunting's kind of evolving into detection engineering because if you're doing a threat hunt to me at the end of it you probably have created a search that then you could use to flag on odd behavior in the environment so that's one of those areas but i, I do know like sans does like the evaluation or something of like what people are considering like hot and cool things to do threat hunting is one of them uh but yeah i'd say that's one of the areas and sometimes too they hear the the things of like oh it's it's hard to get into or it's hard to start a career in cyber uh on the blue side and i mean i guess i I was blessed where i didn't have a lot of struggle uh but i started at lower lower on the totem pole, you know, I was like help desk and then network engineer and things like that. So I think it's kind of a misconception because of some people are immediately trying to jump into, you know, that first uh, tier one and like incident responder job. But if you don't actually understand how networking works and things like this, then you're not, it's going to be tough to get into that first tier incident responder or that SOC analyst job if you just take a step back and you realize like, Oh, I can go get, you know, a net plus or a CCNA real quick and get like, even just like six months or like a year under your belt as like a network engineer or something like that. You can, it makes you that much more marketable to jump in and you'll probably get a better tier one role than the other tier ones that you're trying to get at the beginning. Um, 
a lot of those, you know, some of those shops can be meat grinders from what I've heard. You know, you're just, you're going through a bunch of alerts a day, but that's another misconception. Oftentimes, you know, working your first uh, tier one job, it, a lot of times it's not just a bunch of alert flood. Uh, so that's another misconception. It just depends. The biggest thing is, is find a, if you can find an employer who uh, wants to invest in you, grow you and, and work together as a team to defend the organization. Oftentimes there's a lot of spots out there where people just, they want to have the checkbox of someone working alerts and they want to meet compliance and things like this. And you can work those gigs, but if you can actually find a good spot where people are really wanting to actually defend against their adversaries. And also if they challenge you, the other thing too, is people will say, uh, Oh, it's so challenging jumping into it. Um, but take that leap, you know, jump off that board, dive into the deep end. And, and as it challenges you, you're going to grow and you'll grow quick. So there's multiple things in there that I guess I unraveled as far as misconceptions, but get out there, see what you can do and, and grow yourself, you know, get used to being uncomfortable. Cause if you're not uncomfortable, then you're not challenging yourself and you're not growing in the cyber uh, realm. And I think that's a good note to end it on. <laughs> that that was perfect. Uh, so again, Chris, thank you. Uh, why don't you tell everybody how to find you if you have any social media handles that you want to be where they can reach you? So secure Peacock on Twitter, Christopher Peacock on LinkedIn. Check it out. Uh, just did an awesome post on the TTP pyramid that's available on scythe.io. Uh, that's another good resource. I don't know when this is dropping. I guess we won't have Unicon, but check out Unicon after it airs. That's going to be some good stuff. I believe you already had Katie Nichols on. She's going to be headlining that. So a bunch of good stuff uh, coming through. And, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, no problem. Again, thank you. Thank, thank, you know, thank the team at Scythe. Uh, Bryson, uh, yeah, I'll see you. I guess I'll see you or talk to you soon before this airs or by the time this airs. Until then, everybody, remember to stay safe. This has been another episode of Hacker Valley Blue. I've been your host, Davin Jackson. This has been my, uh, my guest, Christopher Peacock, and I will see you next time. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hacker Valley Blue. If you did, please remember to like it, subscribe to the channel, share it with your friends and colleagues and family members, get it all out there. And make sure you tune in for the next episode. Also remember to join our Discord server and you can talk to me and some of the other Hacker Valley family. So make sure you go check us out over there too. 